Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCoursStory.com. If you have been listening to the show, enjoying it, and have not left a review on Apple Podcast or iTunes, please do so. The reviews really help with the show, so other people know that it is worth listening to. So if you find value and listen on one of those two, Uh, platforms, please leave a review for the show. Well, guys, I am really excited for this week's episode, uh, and you'll definitely be able to tell uh, from the interview that I was a little starstruck because I was talking to Bob Vila. Yes, the Bob Vila, known from this old house, uh, his guest appearances on Home Improvement uh, with Tim Allen, and many other various things, Sears commercials a lot in the 90s. Uh, But Bob Vila was part of my childhood growing up, Uh, all the do-it-yourself, home-fix-up things that my my mom did. Uh, So I had a blast. It was so weird to be sitting in my living room waiting for Bob Vila to call me so I could interview him. Uh, I think you guys will really enjoy this episode. So without further ado, here is Bob Vila. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps. Peace Corps. My Peace Corps. My Peace Corps story. 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 I'm Bob Vila and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Bob Vila, how are you doing? Very well, thank you. Bob, I am so excited to talk to you today uh, because I grew up watching your shows. Uh, My mother always had some sort of home improvement show going on, and I can remember from an early age seeing you on the television. So I am beyond excited uh, to talk to uh, someone that I grew up with uh, coming into my home and a man who is responsible for me doing uh, countless DIY and home improvement projects uh, at my parents' home growing up. So I am beyond excited to speak with you today. Well, Tyler, that's very nice of you. Um, I think that when push comes to the shove, the, the, the best part of, of my entire career uh, always comes down to what you were just talking about, having had the opportunity to come into people's lives and uh, influence them uh, in, 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 the, in the direction of what my passion has always been, which is architecture and design and building and all of the uh, affiliated things. Mm-hmm. And your passion has definitely shown through your body of work. But before we get into that career, I want to get into your Peace Corps service. Uh, sure. Th- those of you, uh, those who are listening, may know of you as you know Bob Vila, the guy who was on this old house, and later Bob Vila's home again. But before all of that, you were a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama, starting yeah, off Panama Seventeen. Yeah. Panama 17. Well, well, starting off, why why did you want to join the Peace Corps? What inspired you to go abroad and serve? Jack Kennedy, uh, 
more than anything, I was uh, so affected, like so many young people were, uh, by his murder. And uh, I was, you know, a high school junior. But uh, in senior year, I started the kind of research to figure out how I could be a Peace Corps volunteer. And um, the majority of the advice that I got was, for God's sakes, go to college first. And uh, that was good advice because um, I uh, basically came out with uh, a joint degree in architecture and a degree in communication sciences. And so uh, four years later, five years later, I um, accepted an invitation to join the Peace Corps. And I guess it was in March of 69 that I went off to training and eventually to Panama City, Panama, uh, where I began um, my stint as a volunteer working in urban community development. So, you know, everything was kind of on track. It, it sounds like it. And you are a, a Cuban-American. You were born in Miami and then spent some time actually growing up in Cuba back and forth in between. So when you went to Panama, you were a native Spanish speaker. Yes, I was uh, of the whole group that uh, went off to training camp in Puerto Rico. Uh, I was quickly uh, sent off to country ahead of everybody else because I didn't need to do the language training. And it gave me an opportunity to spend uh, several weeks kind of getting to know the program that we were going to be working on, which is, you know, the program had been active by a previous uh, set of volunteers that had really started it. And we were uh, uh, we, we were sent to live in a very large squatter community outside of Panama City. So I had the opportunity to um, meet with different community leaders and meet some of the people that the rest of the um, new volunteers would be working with. There, there were a total, I think, of five of us out of the whole big group that were sent to San Miguelito. Um, the rest of the group were either going to be working in cooperatives or in agricultural projects. But uh, uh, it, it was it was terrific. It gave me the opportunity to get right in and get uh, get to know the people right away. Mm -hmm. And as a, a native Spanish speaker, did you make that known when you were applying or did you just hope that you were going to end up in Central America, Latin America? How How is that process? Oh, it was very deliberate. I mean, I absolutely let them know that I was a native Spanish speaker and I absolutely let them know that I was very interested in working in Latin America. And um, I had not specifically picked any particular country program, um, but uh, the you know, the, the, uh, the opportunity that presented itself in Panama was just made to measure for me. Mm -hmm. And you said that you were doing urban development, but what does that actually mean? What kind of projects were you doing during your time in Panama? Well, it was community development. So that what we were really doing was helping to organize, um, leadership in these squatter communities. And, in most of these communities, you already had people who had kind of uh, stood up uh, among the rest of their neighbors as uh, potential leadership uh, material. And the challenges were uh, how to get community services provided into a territory where none existed. 
and where many people had simply arrived in the city looking for work and uh, built themselves some shelter as best they could on lands that had once belonged to the oligarchs and the plutocrats and lands that had lain fallow for decades and hadn't been on the tax rolls. And so you had all these little hills all over the place. And by the time we got there, the project was two years old and the community involved upwards of 60,000 people. Uh, Some parts of the community had made a lot of progress in terms of uh, getting services, getting electricity, getting piped in water. Other parts of the community were very far behind. I was sent to to live in one portion that was called Santa Rosa, and we were mostly still on latrines, and we had um, a water pipe uh, uh, where people came to collect water in five-gallon cans and whatever, um, and it was very primitive. And our objective was to help the folks organize and make hesitate to say demands, but organize and go to the housing institute. It was the Instituto de Vivienda y Urbanismo. So we called it the IVU, I-V-U. And we sometimes refer to it as the dreaded IVU, because <laughs> like so many bureaucracies in, in, in Latin America and throughout the world, uh, people are intimidated by the bureaucrats. The bureaucrats don't particularly want to be helpful to these squatters. They looked down their noses at people who came in from the country and who were essentially begging for basic services. Um, so our objectives were to help them represent themselves and to give, you know, give them some, some credibility. Uh, we, we carried a little bit of clout given that we were the Peace Corps volunteers and we already had a record in country um, that was relatively positive. Uh, so that was largely the role that we were playing. Okay, so a lot of community organization, working with the leaders that had kind of almost self-identified and had, had risen to the top and, and organizing and not really, you know, as you said, not helping them make demands, but uh, figuring out how to navigate the bureaucracy so they could have kind of things that a lot of us in the United States, well, that we take for granted, you know, basic sanitation, electricity, water, and property rights. Uh, I mean, one of the key things was to get these communities platted so that people could eventually get titles to their little plots of land. Okay. And while you were there, uh, did you build anything? I mean, you are known for uh, your house restoration and construction work here in the United States now, but as a Peace Corps volunteer, were you actively building? I I was. I mean, the the uh, uh, part of the thing was that you, you know, obviously on weekends and and uh, uh, during the week when people had uh, the ability to work on their own dwellings, very often we helped with whatever they needed doing, whether it was you know helping them to frame a roof or helping them to uh, put up a wall. Uh, most of the construction there was concrete block and. Uh, that was the, the, the goal was to have a concrete block house with reinforcing rods and a corrugated metal roof. That was the ultimate objective. But many of these people were still making do in practically lean tos made out of salvaged uh, uh, crating material and the like. Um, I built a 
small uh, building out of precast concrete. I found a source. I can't remember whether it was in the canal zone or whether it was just in Panama. And I raised some money and I put up a building that was small. Maybe it was 16 by 16. We measured everything in meters, but I would guess that we were somewhere around 16 feet in, in uh, square. And uh, so that was an opportunity to have a place that served not just as a shelter for me, but also as uh, as a community meeting center. And so we would have informal meetings there. You just said uh, a shelter for yourself. Was this was this your home during your time in Panama? Yeah, yeah that's where I lived. All right. Wow. That's interesting that you, you actually built your home in Panama, because I, I don't think that that that, well, I know for a fact that that definitely doesn't happen now in Peace Corps. Uh, you definitely arrive to a community. Your house is set up there for you. Maybe they just recently built it, or it's been uh, a long-standing uh, home for a while. But that is a uh, oh god, so, yeah. so cool. When I got there, I had temporary housing for the first few months until I got this place built in a uh, partially finished uh, concrete block structure that was maybe. Oh, maybe it was a room uh, eight by 12. It was quite small. The walls were raw concrete blocks. Uh, the window holes had uh, some boards on them. There were no windows there yet. And one of my earliest experiences there was uh, awakening to a rustling noise um, in the corner of the room and lighting my uh, my kerosene lamp and looking around and finding that there was a large snake uh, sharing quarters with me. And, um, as a, whatever I was 20 year old, uh, with a lot of adrenaline, I tried to kill the darn thing. And instead I got bitten on the hand. And so I started that day with a snake bite and I went crazy and killed the snake. I, I don't remember exactly. And the snake was about a meter long. So, and we had all been told about the fair de lance, which, uh, is a snake that uh, can kill you in about 30 seconds. So I realized it wasn't a fur to lunch, but I I, uh, I took my dead snake down about a block away to uh, the house where Doña Juana uh, lived. And she was a community leader, but she was also where I ate meals. Uh, and I show up with this dead snake and uh, she said, Roberto, you're okay, but you better go to the zona. And so I actually, she put it in a, in a jar or something, and I actually took a bus ride to the Canal Zone Hospital, uh, Gorgas Hospital, where they gave me a shot and sent me away. But anyway, that, that was kind of like one of my opening stories about being a Peace Corps volunteer in Panama. And uh, luckily for me, it was not a poisonous snake. It was some sort of big rat snake. But we had, you know, we had a lot of uh, wildlife and... Uh, I quickly got a pet cat to help control <laughs> with the uh, the rat population and whatever. Uh, and y- you know, you you were expected to figure it out, as it were. I mean, I had the uh, 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 the job of digging myself a latrine, and eventually, I uh, you know, we used to put two fifty-five uh, gallon drums one on top of the other and dig a deep hole and uh, create a latrine there. And I had the good fortune to somehow get a big plywood crate that 
that I used to build an A-frame structure over the over the latrine, and uh, you're bringing back all these memories now because it's so long ago. This is hard to believe that it's going to be 50 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Well, I'm I'm happy that I can sort of bring back these memories, and that's one thing that I enjoy about doing this podcast is having uh, the opportunity to listen to stories and to give the opportunity to others to to kind of relive and remember uh, the amazing experience that is Peace Corps. How did your family uh, take when when you told them that you wanted to go serve in the Peace Corps? Um, did they have any reservations because they had you know, they had immigrated for, from Cuba to, to the United States and uh, you had made a life there, and then now you were thinking about going back. Because I've talked to some volunteers who were uh, who are the the children of immigrants, and they definitely didn't understand why they would want to go to a developing country when they were now in the United States. So, how did your family feel about you joining the Peace Corps? Well, my you know my Cuban mother was very scared and apprehensive. My father was very supportive and saw it as a wonderful opportunity. And um, he was right. And she was eventually, you know, calmed down. Um, I, I guess I came back after a few months because um, this is all coinciding with a difficult period uh, in our history. Obviously, the Vietnam War is going on. Um, the draft lottery takes place um, three months in, four months in. Uh, I was you know, barely established doing what I was doing in my community when they had the lottery. And that affected a lot of people who decided that, uh, that they would leave. Um, and, uh, the ones that got high numbers, I was, uh, I actually had an enormously high number, uh, the way the lottery works, your birthday got assigned a number between one and 365. And the, 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 any numbers, the, the, I think the cutoff was somewhere around 120 or 140 or something like that. If your number was below that, you were uh, uh, going to lose your deferral and you could be drafted right out of the Peace Corps. If you were above that, uh, you didn't have to worry about the draft. And uh, as I said, my, my number was very, very high, uh, but it was not an issue. There was, there, there, there was no uh, no chance that I was going to changed my plans there. I was very much involved already and very much in love with uh, the whole the whole idea. Um, and I guess three or four months into it, we uh, Peace Corps volunteers um, somehow pre-internet managed to organize a worldwide protest against the Tet Offensive. Um, and I, along with three other guys, um, managed to put together some funding and traveled to Washington, D.C. to turn over a petition with over a thousand signatures from volunteers around the world. Um, and logistically, I can't for the life of me remember how we accomplished this, but there was a lot of letter <laughs> writing. And we brought a, a, a protest protesting the Tet Offensive and protesting the presence in Vietnam. And so we were kind of uh, being troublemakers in that sense. I did end up on the front page of the Washington Post whenever that was in 1969. And uh, and so I had an opportunity to come through and visit with my family for two or three days and give them an earful of what I was doing in country. Um, I had had a beard 
which I had shaved off for the Peace Corps. I mean, in college, I had had the beard that I've had most of my life, but the two years that I served in, in the Panama Peace Corps, I shaved the beard because I did not want to be associated with uh, radicals. I did not want to be associated with Cuban revolutionaries. I just wanted to make sure that I was as clean cut as possible. And uh, so that, that was part of the experience too. Um, and eventually all that activity uh, played a role in, in what went on for the two years that we were there. Mm-hmm. Well, one, thank you for that history. I never even realized or, or even considered how the, the draft would have affected volunteers. And I guess I kind of just assumed incorrectly that, well, you were serving your country in that capacity, so you were okay. Uh, but no, <laughs> if you if your number came up, your number came up. Uh, so that one, thank you for, for giving us that little bit of history. And also, I love the fact that you uh, you shaved your beard uh, for the Peace Corps because uh, I actually did the same thing many times uh, while while serving uh, in my country in Burkina Faso uh, mm-hmm. for a lot of the for a lot of the same reasons they they didn't view uh, a bearded man uh, as uh, as a respectful individual a lot of the times uh, so I would right. go clean go clean shaven right. Well, when when you served in Panama, it was also an interesting time in their history. Uh, I did a little a uh, little bit of research and actually spoke to some more recent uh, Panama volunteers. And when you were there, I mean, they had more or less the from what I read, they didn't call it a coup, but it more or less seemed like it. Like the army had had taken over uh, just a few years before you got there, and uh, the president at the time. Uh, Omar, uh, was it uh, Torrijos? Torrijos. Torrijos, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and what, one thing I, I read called him dictator-like. They didn't, they didn't call him a dictator, uh, but he was dictator-like. Did you, did you feel like you were in a country that was being run by a dictator, or did you even really feel the, the political nature uh, of the country in your community and doing your work? We were aware of the fact that we were no longer in uh, a democracy. Uh, We were aware that we had in Omar Torrijos um, a military uh, dictatorship that had the potential for being pretty benevolent and had um, government bureaucracies that were entrenched and were in place but that we basically had with uh, General Torrijos, somebody who was quite sympathetic to the plight of the immigrants and the, not immigrants, but of, of the people that were uh, coming into the city from from the countryside where they couldn't make a living. Um, I don't remember exactly the dates, but you know, you read a bit of the history and so that you know that Torrijos was killed in a plane crash. And mm-hmm. Uh, everybody pretty much believed that the plane crash had been caused by a bomb planted on the plane. And um, eventually we had uh, the dictatorship run by um, the guy they called Pineapple Face, (laughs) uh, who uh, who eventually served time in jail and might still be in jail in the United States. And, uh, 
Noriega was his name. And Noriega was uh, a pretty brutal guy. And he was also uh, somebody who was very involved in narco trafficking. I think he might still be alive. Trying to reminisce about that period. Um, it isn't just the political upheaval of having one dictator replaced by another one in the country where you're living in, trying to work in, but also at the same time, we're seeing the transition to Richard M. Nixon and the Nixonian um, approach to diplomacy, which immediately affected the Peace Corps. Because remember, the Peace Corps had a quasi-diplomatic role that, uh, that we played. We were making friends for the United States. And anywhere that we worked, there was always the possibility that uh, the embassies, USAID people, et cetera, would befriend Peace Corps volunteers in an effort to get more information about you, you name it, whether it's mm -hmm. uh, local politics or whatever. And that was certainly something that uh, we were sort of aware of, but that shortly after uh, the Nixonian uh, takeover uh, became more obvious, the people who had been our country directors, uh, who came from the tradition of Sergeant Shriver, um, lost their jobs and replaced uh, were replaced by people who were, um, I hesitate to say political cronies, but uh, certainly being rewarded with posts in, in the diplomatic world and in the heading of Peace Corps country programs because of their politics. So things changed um, quite a bit. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's been a long time. I can't remember exactly what month I'm talking about, but it, it certainly had an impact. And it was at a time where we were pretty far along with our work in, in San Miguelito um, in terms of a lot of the accomplishments that you know, a lot of the goals that we had for, for our people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to think that that time of, I guess, sort of the, the sense of, the Peace Corps volunteers potentially being spies uh, it, embedded in the community and doing intel. I know that that was a, an, an error in Peace Corps that was a, a little rocky and in some instances uh, found to be true, uh, regrettably. And the, right. And, and the whole Peace Corps was asked to leave Panama, um, largely as, as a result of all of this stuff. Um, so my tour was two months shy of completion when the whole program was asked to leave the country. Oh, so I, I didn't actually realize that, that you were part of that wave that was more or less kicked out. Kicked out. Wow. Well, well getting back into to your service and the stories of them, do you, do you have any memories that really stand out as just a, a happy experience, one that you enjoy telling about your time in Panama? I think that there were many um, that were just part of the day-to-day -day life in the community, whether it was an, a nighttime meeting with kerosene lamps where just, you know, six or eight or 10 or 12 people were talking about identifying uh, problems and solutions and when we could take the time to go see so-and-so, that kind of thing, or whether it's fiestas and getting to uh, know the customs of the country 
and the the ability sometimes to uh, travel into the countryside uh, to see the culture and to sample the food and what they drank and and because it wasn't just the 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 Hispanic culture in Panama but the native culture and the mixture of the two. Um, I mean, I mean, it was it was wonderful. It was wonderful to to uh, to see the world, as it were, straight out of college, and we were seeing it with such depth. We were also uh, making friendships with a lot of really like-minded people uh, who were idealistic uh, uh, recent college graduates in their early twenties, and we were making relationships that um, last to this day. My my. Two of my closest friends from the Peace Corps are still very much close friends. Uh, I see them with some regularity, although we don't live in the same towns. Um, and our wives and, and uh, there, there's definitely uh, 50 years later an impact that uh, that is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And did you experience any hardships or difficulties during your service? Aside from the snake bite, um, <laughs> aside from the snake and, bite, and you know crotch rot and you name it, uh, there, there were a lot of you know there were a lot of challenges. You're you're living uh, um, under austere circumstances at best, and you're exposed to a lot of stuff that you never experienced, that you never thought you would experience, uh, in terms of uh, health and and uh, hygiene and the like, uh, but. You know, my life was never really threatened. I, I had friends who uh, had one friend in particular who's a pig farmer in Iowa, and he's a wonderful man who uh, woke up on his army cot one night in the middle of his uh, area where he was living to find a huge vampire bat uh, stuck on his on his toe, and uh, he. Uh, he had to make the journey into the city to get to the hospital. And he stayed with me for a week or two because he had to go through the rabies series, with, which back in those days meant I think he got 14 shots, one a day, and you had to go to the hospital every day. No, I, I mean, I, I never felt uh, that I had really put my life in danger the way some volunteers did just because of the locations where they were working. Mm-hmm. And through your experience of, you know, connecting with these communities and learning about this culture at a very deep level, you know, a level that you can never really obtain if, unless you live someplace. Do you have any key takeaways that you learned from your Peace Corps service that shaped uh, the rest of your life? I think that the ability to listen is not something that's taught in, uh, in school. And I think a lot of people are born with that ability, but um working in a different culture and for most of us in a different language um, helped everyone, I think, develop that, that real important skill in life, which is to be able to listen. Mm -hmm. And you left Peace Corps in 1973 and then started your career as it is now uh, a little bit before then, but you, you know, started this old house in 1979, oh. six years uh, later. There's a lot of water under, yeah, there's a lot of water under the bridge between the time I left the Peace Corps and the time that 
this old house uh, came came along, knocking on my door. We I uh, after the Peace Corps service ended, I thought that I would go back to graduate school, but I had an opportunity to go to Europe, and I lived in Europe for the next two years. And again, I hesitate to blame it on Nixon, but the the culture. Uh, first of all. You, you, you have to deal with something called culture shock when you leave the country that you've been working in and come back to the States. And when the States is going through what was happening in 68, 69, 70, 71, 72, uh, with military actions all over the world and all sorts of terrible things happening, I had the opportunity to go uh, join the fellow that had been my program director in Panama, who was a few years older, and he'd started a business in Germany. And uh, I ended up living in Stuttgart, Germany for the next two years uh, and traveled all over the place, but primarily was based there. Um, and it wasn't until, uh, I guess, the beginning of 73 that I came back uh, because by then it was going to be four years that I was gone. And my father was uh, really asking me to reconsider this long absence. And, uh, and so I came back at the beginning of 73. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then, then what led you into your current career? Uh, you know, what, well, I, went, uh, I went, yeah, no, I went straight to Boston to uh, study at the Boston architectural college and I met the woman that I married the first month that I was there. And I worked on a project that she was involved with, uh, renovating a brownstone. And two years later, we were married. Three years later, we had our first kid. Uh, we restored a house that we bought for short money uh, in a very prominent location. It got a lot of press. And so this is like 676, 77. And so it was that house that was used as a pilot for a WGBH program that eventually became this old house. And at first, uh, it was going to be a show that was going to have a magazine format where every week you just toured a different renovated house. But eventually, what the TV guys got uh, uh, got inspired to do was to find a, a wreck of a house and do the restoration on <laughs> camera and show the nuts and bolts. And, and that's when they asked me to host it. And, um, again, that's pure serendipity because for somebody who has studied architecture and communication sciences, uh, to be asked to work on camera on this kind of project, um, was, you know, was taking a leap of faith here for the producers. But what I've learned over the years is that, uh, there is something called being telegenic and, uh, some people are born with the ability to talk into a camera and explain something and, and other folks aren't. And so, you know, for the next, uh, for the next 27 years, I guess I <laughs> did TV shows, interviewing people from plumbers to real estate brokers, to roofing contractors, to homeowners, to architects, you name it. And I think it's all an evolution, uh, it's all an evolution from the very first kinds of things that I was doing, uh, listening and talking with people in, in, in my squatter community in Panama. 
Well, wow. I mean, that is just so beautiful that you know you you had this passion for architecture and communication, went into Peace Corps, refined what you said. You know, something that you took away was the ability to listen uh, and, and and spend time with somebody and be present with them, and then you just kept following things that you you found interesting and were important to you, and then led you into this career that now looking back, it seems like you couldn't have asked for a more perfect uh more perfect career i got very lucky i got mm-hmm. very lucky and what are you working on now i you know i went, went to your website you're still i mean beyond beyond active in uh home improvement and other things and one thing that i actually saw that as i was looking through past interviews and i saw this one little clip uh, about you talking about uh, pest control, and th- there was this question about mosquitoes, and you gave this, you know, well-formed answer talking about uh, things you can do to prevent mosquitoes in the breeding, and it just reminded me of the more or less the exact same trainings that I gave in Peace Corps uh, for malaria prevention. Uh, so is that something that you're actively engaged in now, sort of this pest control uh, issue? Um, no, I was asked to help out with, you know, with a national, a national campaign. Uh, and so that is something I've done. Um, and we had the whole scare with, you know, the Zika, uh, and my kids and grandkids live in South Florida. Uh, so it's a natural opportunity. I mean, the, the opportunity to do public service announcements for a variety of things is something that, um, I try to take seriously. I, you know, I'm a web publisher. BobVila.com is uh, uh, an active running uh, entity. Uh, all of my Bob Vila Home Again shows are available through YouTube and through BobVila.com. So, you know, there's still this presence in the media uh, that doesn't seem to want to go away. I still uh, do a bunch of radio spots. Uh, Bob Bila Minutes. In fact, I had to do a recording session earlier today. Um, but most of what really excites me these days has to do with uh, uh, a project that has taken me back to Cuba. And I've been going back to Cuba for almost a dozen years now uh, with uh, a project that has been collaborating with the Cuban Culture Ministry in the restoration of Ernest Hemingway's home and his collections his personal library and all of his things. Hemingway died. Uh, Many people know that Hemingway took his own life in Idaho, but he had lived for 20 years at this beautiful gentleman's farm that he acquired in the late 30s. And that was his home. That was where everything was. And in 59, after the Castro Revolution, um, he left and he came back and uh, there was a famous photo of him and Castro in a fishing tournament, but he didn't much like what he saw there. And uh, when he ended his life, he left his, uh, his home and his collections to the Cuban people to be kept as a museum. He left his gold Nobel Prize medal to the Cuban people to be kept uh, at a national, national sanctuary, which is out in the eastern end of the island. And he left many, many, many hundreds of friends. Um, and so to make a long story short, I've been able to join that effort 
And we, in fact, just today got the good news that we have approval to send our third shipment of American building products and tools uh, to Cuba. Uh, these are the first such products that have been sent there since 1958. And we've been building a paper conservation laboratory and an archival storage vault on the property there. Uh, so this is one of the projects that, that uh, uh, keeps me ticking. It's, it's, it's a wonderful opportunity. And so, you know, I have the the good fortune to be able to lend my name and my time and my experience and a little money sometimes to projects like that. Um, here in New York, we, we've just, uh, uh, I've just been invited on the board of a, uh, an organization that is one of the great museums here. It's the uh, Hispanic Museum and Library, which is over a century old. And the building is closed for renovations now. And the collection, treasures from the collection, are traveling the world, uh, have spent time at the Prado Museum in Spain and Madrid and spent time at the Fine Arts Museum in Mexico City and in a week are opening in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Um, and while all this is happening, uh, we are raising funds and beginning the process of restoring uh, a museum building that was built uh, 120 years ago and funded by Archer Hunting whose brother, uh, this is a railroad fortune, his brother is very well known for his Huntington Museum out in uh, in Pasadena. And this museum and its collection is less well known. So anyway, I, I, I have had the opportunity to get involved with a number of these cultural uh, things, which I find fascinating and very rewarding. Wow. To, to say that you are Busy and, and and active would be an understatement. It sounds like, uh, and such so, such an interesting thing that you have just continued uh, to literally build the world around you uh, in, in in Peace Corps, and then your your home improvement shows, and then now being able to connect to, to Cuba, uh, the mu- the museum work that you're currently doing now. Uh, did not know any of that, and that is a amazing work. Is the uh, home in Cuba is that eventually going to be a museum, or is it already a functioning oh, no, 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 sort no. of museum? It, it has functioned as a museum for over fifty years, and it is the most visited museum in Cuba. It is uh, filled on a daily basis. We don't think about tourism in Cuba as Americans that much. Uh, it started opening up uh, in the Obama years. Uh, unfortunately, uh, since. Uh, uh, since the current administration has taken over in Washington, a lot of changes have happened and uh, a lot of unexplained things have happened in Cuba that have affected our diplomatic corps. Uh, but tourism from around the world is still very strong. So we get a lot of visitors from the Orient and from Europe uh, at the museum. And you have to remember that Ernest Hemingway's uh, work and reputation is global. It's beloved worldwide. He is one of the the greatest American treasures ever. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully one day I have the opportunity to visit Cuba and and visit that museum. I have read many of Hemingway's works and love every single one of them, as I feel that most people do who who read his uh, very deep um, the breadth of his collection of works. Well, Bob, I have. Really enjoyed taking the time to to speak with you, to learn about your Peace Corps experience and all these things that uh, just 
don't get captured when you're reading about someone's background in history online. Uh, and, and just talking with you now, I feel like I need to go uh, amend some of these resources that are online that are talking about your 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 life and your body of work because they they do not do it justice. Uh, thank you very much for for speaking with me. And in closing, do you have anything that you want to tell the listeners of the My Peace Corps Story podcast? And those would be people who are interested in Peace Corps, currently in Peace Corps, and then a lot of returned Peace Corps volunteers. Well, I would say, first of all, thank you to all of you for your service. And uh, I I always want to encourage people to uh, talk about these experiences to youngsters and uh, get the word out at the high school level, which is where I first learned about the Peace Corps, uh, about what a wonderful opportunity it is to serve not just the U.S., but to serve mankind and see the world. Uh, There's just nothing like it. I, I couldn't agree more. Well, Bob, thank you very much for taking some time today to speak with me. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. Take care. And there you have it. Another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I really enjoyed this episode, but I'm pretty sure you guys already knew that from my introduction, fanboying a little hard, and at some times stumbling over myself. Uh, it really pointed out the, my, my lack of experience in interviewing people, even though that I've been doing this for more than a year. Uh, Bob Vila gets a lot of interview requests, so he is a seasoned veteran, and I definitely uh, don't know if I was prepared uh, as much as I should be, but it's all learning experience. And Mr. Vila, Bob, as I now get to call him, I guess, uh, was so kind to take some time to uh, talk to me about his Peace Corps service and share his stories. If you guys know of other famous people uh, who have served in the Peace Corps and you'd love to hear their stories, uh, let me know who they are. I will try to reach out to them. This all started by me sending a message to a form on Bob Vila's website and a few days later someone on his staff got back to me. So I am definitely willing to try to reach out to these people. Um, Worst case scenario I hear nothing back from them. Uh, But if you have uh, ideas of people that you would like me to talk to please let me know. You can reach me over at mypeacecorestory.com all the various social media platforms I'd love to hear from you. Until next time remember Every volunteer has a story. What's yours?